they, they would be better if they could try and cultivate, encourage someone like that to do co-commentary. Someone like... Rio. Not whether he'd be any good at it, but at least try it. I feel he's got the brains for it. Mm. Yeah. Goodbye. He's got the brains for it. Yeah. I think for all the criticism that uh, Rio Ferdinand got, and he's going to get some criticism during this coming podcast as well, but um, from from what I know of him, and I know him quite well on account of the fact that mm-hmm. he probably thinks of me as one of his top three or four friends. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jay-Z, you. Um, yeah, yeah. So cultural to inspiration. Yeah. To, to yeah. the extent that I once got a, um, a Happy Christmas text from Rio Ferdinand. It was probably meant for Hugh Jackman or something. <laughs> I think it, it was it was the kind of time where people would send texts to all. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not the I same. Think, is I it? wake up on Christmas it's morning and yeah, Rio's yeah. getting in touch. That's really nice of you. Did you think? Oh my God, this is exclusive. Yeah, I, I just thought it's just me. You're sending that to no family members or acquaintances, um, and I I like him mm-hmm. and I think he is very intelligent. There's a zinger cer- on the way, certainly comparatively, but he he got swept up in or or maybe his. Lack of experience at doing a lot of studio-based or punditry allowed himself to not a- be able to keep a distance. If you see what I mean, he was—he gets—he got swept up in the whole football's coming home train. Oh, I see. Which, as you know, having no emotional connection with the game whatsoever is of great benefit. To I you. have a massive, but I still put it in context with the job i'm doing thierry Henry, for example has a massive emotional connection with the game which is why he feels like he needs to focus on his career as a manager absolutely and aren't we all thankful for that is uh, <laughs> is there is there room for you to move up the ranks now that uh, thierry has been cast aside sadly Stephen, i think not i think not well rank maybe finance rank no no how many world cups did i w- did i win a- i didn't win the world cup did i yeah yeah no you did did i three times I won the World Cup three times. Football came home thanks to you. Wow. Three times. Wow. We've still not said anything funny, have we? This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. We are once again three, but that's just as well because the food is delicate and in short supply. A recent uh, anniversary trip overseas has yielded a present, some Italian biscuits that were lovingly sourced from a quaint Venetian boutique and were not at all a free gift upon arrival in the hotel room. Mm. Um, so Do you know what I like about them? <laughs> so I like about Are you going to read the label? Yeah, I am. And it says Italy. But it, it, this is the funny thing. <laughs> okay. It's not Thanks Italy as in the country. It's eat. Kind of basically combined with Tali. Uh, it's very good. So say it's one more very time. good. Italy. And in doing so, it yeah. makes you sound like you are from... Italy. It's wonderful, wonderful stuff. Uh, I don't think I've seen you so happy, Chinch. (laughs) I will be when he opens the packet. Uh, They are biscotti riso coco canella. I thought so. Rice, coconut, cinnamon biscuits. Super. So with that coffee that you have been provided, here is your free uh, biscuit that comes alongside it uh, if you go somewhere fancy. But this was a a freebie? No, no, no. It was lovingly sourced from a Venetian boutique. Really? Yeah. Hotel where it was a freebie. Oh, God, it's double wrapped. Oh, no. This is really confusing. Anyway, so Rory is once again missing out, not only on our company, but also these biscotti. And later, we'll be once again asking, where are you, Rory? While fully knowing all along what the actual answer is. Uh, So with me, Hugh Ferris, are football commentator Stephen Wyeth, a man whose summer holiday will hopefully not resemble the 2012 movie Sightseers. He's taking the family to a caravan in Suffolk, (laughs) all the while promising there won't be any murdering. And football co-commentator Andy Hinchcliffe, a man whose summer holiday will definitely resemble his winter, spring and autumn holidays because it will be in Portugal and he will be arguing with a rogue kitchen fitter, all the while promising that if they don't plumb in the dishwasher correctly, there may well be some murdering. Uh, so do get in touch via Setpiece Menu on Twitter and Setpiece Menu at gmail.com. Damn you, Ikea Portugal! <laughs> There's your biscotti. Put oh, wow, is that all mine? Suck suck on that biscotti and hopefully your temperatures will uh, mm. relent just a little. <laughs> That's a terrible noise. Now, last week we did promise that uh, we would give you our take on the England story at the World Cup. And thank goodness we've got a former England international whose mouth is currently hmm? stuffed full of biscotti. Mm. It's not just their football, but also the fans and the media narrative that followed them. How did low expectations before the tournament turn into a pre-semi-final opinion from some, not all, but enough to make an impact that England would indeed smash Croatia, a team that clearly had no chance with their best of the tournament midfield and incredible determination to come from behind twice and win on penalties twice? 
We're going to chart what happened as we saw it and ask how different actually was the different England experience of Russia 2018. So let's set things up and consider the pre-tournament expectations, which were as articulated by Dan Ashworth, the technical director at the FA, and the man in charge of all things England DNA, he said that the target was not a specific target, but simply one um, to inspire the nation. Well, as wishy-washy and unsatisfying as that might have been at the time, mm. funnily enough, they delivered on that. But it was their way of expressing perhaps a lack of expectation themselves, which I think we all agreed was understandable because there weren't many amongst the English public and English football fans, indeed the media, who had particularly high expectations. Have I articulated that um, successfully from the pre-World Cup tournament time? There is a phenomenon of which we have discussed on this podcast before. It is the phenomenon of the player that is so underrated, they become overrated. Yes. And thus brings us on to England, of whom expectations were so low, suddenly on the eve of the World Cup, there was murmurings, wasn't there, that perhaps this team might just be a little bit better than we all thought. And dare we say it, the quarterfinals beckon at the very least. This is an unhelpful way of coming into a tournament because you're essentially never going to achieve what you set out to achieve. It's like expecting Andy Hinchcliffe mm. to give us a steady three out of ten every time. It's not going to happen. And then perhaps we think, oh, it might be a five out of ten. Uh. But considering the context, five out of ten will be wildly overreaching. Yeah. And so we tend to then get excited about the fact that Andy Hinchcliffe might surprise us. And in fact, the whole pre-tournament low expectations give way immediately to pre-tournament high expectations. It's an unending circle of mm. doom. Is it how far we got or how we played that people were interested in? Because how you play is ultimately what's going to bring you, you would think, success in the next European Championships, in the next World Cup, because you've got to kind of build on and on and on. So getting to a semi-final and however we did that, how did we play? Do we all feel we played well? You talk about the expectations and, and underachieving, overachieving, all that kind of... But how did we play? Well, here's the funny thing, and it's probably the thing that we're going to end on because oh, right. of everything that came before that conversation because that conversation wasn't necessarily taking place until after mm. the semi-final, indeed, after the World Cup finished. That The way that England played, certainly in the early stages, seemed secondary to the way that they connected with the media, to the way that they uh, conducted themselves whilst out in Russia, to the way that they played games in pools on blow-up unicorns mm. and threw a chicken around. Mm. So these are the things that were connecting the England team to the England public. Winning games. Happened, winning happened games helps, doesn't it? And they were winning games. But, yeah, but. but at the very beginning, yeah. it wasn't necessarily about how they played. Yeah. I think the, the late goal against Tunisia had a significant effect on how those pre-tournament expectations started to change mm -hmm. because there would have been those, uh, probably me amongst them, who said... If it had been an England of old, it would have been 1-1. One, one. Mm. That was the moment that set the tempo for the ebb and flow of the journey with England through the World Cup, which was, you know, how did they play? It's a fair question, but it was great fun. We enjoyed it. Oh, winning games. And we winning connected. Shootouts. We it doesn't matter how you it. do it. It doesn't matter. about. It's about the now. And it's great, isn't it? Because we've not had that for so long. So why not enjoy the moment? But... These seemed like a likeable bunch of lads, didn't they? And, yeah. and suddenly the nation was willing them to do well rather than demanding it. But that Tunisia game set the tempo. Anybody with a passing knowledge of global football or even the ability to look at the FIFA rankings was saying before the tournament started, Tunisia, tricky. That is a tricky opener. They're robust. They're organised. They're determined. Defensively, they're going to be really difficult to break down and do you know what one or two people think I'd take a draw now if you offered it to me I'd take an opening game draw let's make sure there's no embarrassment then England win the game with more or less the final head of the ball and seemingly wasn't quite good enough mm. the encouraging display in the first half had been forgotten the fact that the second half was a bit of a drag was at the forefront of everybody's mind and there was a suggestion that England were a little bit lucky to get a, to get a victory in a game which 
literally days before everyone had been saying yeah. was a testing opener to the World Cup and do you know what to win it would be a, would be a quite the achievement but is, isn't this how has this not happened in the past with with is this is this specific to this England squad in this tournament in that game but we are we not had this before we're, we're, we're now looking through it uh, through the through the kaleidoscope of fake news mm. and the way that we absorb and take in social media and the sort of flurry of information that comes our way from every possible direction. And that's why I think following England through this World Cup from home via the media was quite the fascinating experience because you got to you got to go along with the roller coaster in a in a in a more intense fashion than, than we'd ever been able to before. So it's, it's kind of, we're great or no, we're not. Yeah. Or we're great or we're not. But so we're it's trying, that ebb and flow. There was no nuance. Yes, yes. Trying to make the point that perhaps the England experience this time, which was framed in a way that suggested it was completely different, mm-hmm. wasn't actually that different. Because just like before the England-Tunisia game, there was a sense, well, England w- might not win this. Tunisia are pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then when they won it, there was no regard of the previous context that Tunisia were quite good. Because... England winning 2-1 with the last kick of the game was slightly euphoric, but then there was the sense of, well, well why, didn't they, why didn't they win it before then? Yes. So there's, there, there was, which is exactly how it would have been in times gone by. So if it really is a different experience, why mm-hmm. are we reacting in exactly the same way instead of having that sensible conversation that we were so pleased that the England players were having with us via the media? But then we move on to Panama. This, this is an example of a team that should be beaten by England and were beaten by England, and what was the what was the reaction afterwards, Steve? It's only Panama. Mm. <laughs> what are you getting excited about? Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you you should you should put six goals past Panama. Yeah, that, yeah. that's the easy bit. Mm-hmm. You conceded one for crying out loud. Mm. They've never scored in a World Cup finals before. You imbeciles. Yes, it was bizarre, and it all it all came, of course, with with you know with beforehand the leaked team sheet. The oh, we've fallen into own, uh, old ways. The PR gaff of Gareth Southgate's assistant walking onto the training ground with the uh, proposed lineup for the Panama game on full display. And well, the media, they stepped over the line there, didn't they? They took advantage of their position as though the Panama coach couldn't work out for himself <laughs> that the injured Deli Ali would be replaced by Ruben Loftus-Cheek, the player in the squad to replace Deli Ali if he was injured. And that Raheem Sterling, who'd been a bit disappointed, might be shunted out of the team in favour of Marcus Rashford. Mm. I mean, it's groundbreaking, groundbreaking stuff. Well, the, the Panama coach would really have to well. earn his corn because it, they, they are... They, you would never suspect England would do that. You but really wouldn't. That was an interesting dynamic because there was, for about 48 hours, it raged, didn't it? Mm. This debate about whether England, the press should be supporting England, should be the cheerleaders for the team. Did Carl Walker come out and say something about this? Yeah, is Gareth Southgate now, said something which this. he later admitted was slightly injudicious about whether they, the, the, the press need to consider about whether they are supporting this team or not. Yeah. And those, those kind of comments, it, and, and the press, of course, fought back because if the press have a story, it is their duty to, mm-hmm. uh, to release it. It is in the public interest. And then there's the argument about whether it's in the public interest or not. I'm a fan, and I'd rather not know if it means that the other team don't know. And there was a debate that raged wildly about whether the media should be supportive of England. That's not how it works. That's never how it's worked. And probably the debate only rages because there's been a misunderstanding about whether the tabloid newspapers in particular have been so pro-nation, pro-England in the past and then so disappointed to go right against them that they thought that that pro-nation was actually an articulation of the fact that they are supporting the England team. It's not. They are reflecting a public mood mm-hmm. going into a tournament. And it was... You were particularly frustrated, Steve, about the nature of that conversation. Yeah, well, on Twitter. Then, then you got an awful lot of moralising from supposedly in the nose who told stories of the moments where they hadn't portrayed confidences and that was the right thing to do without any realisation whatsoever that those were completely different circumstances. That was information that had been given to them on the understanding that they didn't share it, not something that was discovered within a public forum. It also, the argument and the debate also completely lost sight of the fact that not every single photographer at the England training ground was shock horror English. There would have been Panamanian journalists there reviewing England ahead of the match. There would have been German, Spanish, French media personnel who would have delighted in the opportunity to 
have a laugh at England's expense over their but they failure must have known to. This. It, they must have known this. So why make such a big deal of it? Because it was a story that was, you know, it it, it drove the agenda for a couple of days between England games, and like I say, it was like. It gave an opportunity to reflect upon previous disasters in which uh, the, the the English press and and the FA hadn't seen eye to eye and perhaps had been held accountable or responsible for some way in the in the wheels coming off in terms of a major tournament. Whereas it was just a blip on the copybook, really. And who's to say it wasn't a very very clever ploy by Gareth Southgate by the England coaching staff to see just how much legroom they had if you like with the press in terms of how good the relationship was conspiracy theory perhaps yeah so England went into the Tunisia game with the prevailing thought being that England should win but it will be tough and when they do win but it was tough it wasn't enough of a win (laughs) going to the Panama game on the back of this cheerleading argument uh, saying that England should win easily and they win easily and it wasn't enough yeah so this all feels a little bit um, familiar. Yes. You go into the Belgium game, which in itself was something of a phony war in terms of the yeah. 11 against 11. But th- again, this debate in the papers leading up to it was, well, Gareth Southgate should be coy and canny. And if he was anything, if he was a clever, clever guy like any other country would approach this game, he'd think about losing it to make sure that the easier part of the draw is the part that England access for the knockout stages. And yeah, that would make a lot of sense to lose it. Hey, that, that, what a good idea, what a good opportunity. And then he makes eight changes, nine changes for the game. And Gary Neville on ITV was going, well, he's taking a huge risk here. <laughs> he's going to live and die by this decision. And then England lose it. And all the Coverage afterwards is about the fact that, oh, well, England have taken a huge risk by losing that. They've lost the momentum, the momentum that they had after two games, which apparently weren't good yes, enough. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and it just, it just baffles me. And it just makes me think that it's exactly as it always has been. Because there was some delirium after Panama. It wasn't all, well, of course you should beat them. You know, that pe- not everybody had, had lost sight of the fact that Panama had qualified at United States' expense. So they, they were no mugs. They deserved to be at the World Cup. Yeah, then immediately started losing sight of something that had been talked about so much before the World Cup that England had only ever won one game in knockout tournament in a major competition since 19... I exaggerate, but they very had won very few knockout games since 1966. And suddenly we were all like, well, we can pick our path. Yeah, because yeah. we've beaten Panama, Absolute we can pick arrogance. our path through arrogance. to the final now. So there was some of that started creeping in again. <laughs> some of that overconfidence, the, the hubris that very often surrounds England at, at a major tournament just started to creep in at an entirely the wrong moment. But yeah, they, they couldn't make their minds up. One minute it was like, yep, they'll do well to lose this game and, and, in, and ensure they avoid Brazil in the quarterfinals, assuming, of course, that England would get there, which was a completely nonsensical, to also, oh, it's a massive gamble. What are you playing at making all of those changes? You can't win, can you? You simply can't win. Yeah. <laughs> so he makes the changes doing what he thinks is right. And whatever happens, he, he can be criticised for it, depending on what comes in, in, the, in the remaining game. So, yeah, but again, yeah, people are saying this has been so different from how things have gone in previous World Cups. But as, as you were saying, is it is it that different? The stupidity with which we, we we talk before games and then after games, we seem to forget after a match what's been said before it. And of course, the most, the most over overused word of the moment was momentum. Was it, oh, well, they'll lose their momentum. They'll lose the momentum from beating Panama if they don't play their strongest possible team against Belgium because that's the entirely same sort of opposition. It was surreal. It really was fascinating. And I, I, it added to my enjoyment of the World Cup, I felt, going along with all the crazy. Because you, <laughs> you, could, you could enjoy it because of the low-ish expectations. You could embrace it a little bit more because you were like, well, that doesn't really matter. And of course, one of the, the aspects of losing to Belgium was that uh, England played against Colombia in the next round, which was slightly harder than playing against Japan. Japan. And so there was the secondary aspect, which was, oh, yes, much easier, much easier route. Oh, but, oh, but it's Colombia. Hey. Colombia are brilliant. Or alternatively, Colombia are awful. Which was the absurd, <laughs> which was the absurdity of the discussion anyway. No because with Colombia. No problems. We'd have never have known until two hours before kickoff who England's yeah. last 16 opponents were going to be. Yes. 
So it was completely nonsensical nonsensical to be talking about picking your path through the knockout phase yeah, but this when is you didn't England. even know who it was going to be. Of course we're going to do this. This is what we do. But, so what were Belgium thinking going into that England game? Were they, do you think they went through the same no, rigmarole? They made that, 10 changes. No, but in terms of their thinking, in terms of whether we win this game or we try and lose this game because the path it might then give us going forward, would they have gone through the same thought processes that all the English media were going through or maybe Gareth Southgate was going Were they doing the same thing or is it specifically English, the I way that what, we saw, the, the, the way we approached the Belgium what, game? What happened with Belgium after winning that England game is that they absolutely lost their momentum in the first half against Japan they because did, they, they were 2-0 down. Were. So yes. clearly the momentum thing doesn't yeah, make any yeah. sense they came back they were brilliant they won 3-2 and then mm-hmm. they beat Brazil so mm-hmm. I, they both got to the semi-finals Belgium had better wins over better opposition but they still only got to the semi-finals and they beat England again in the fourth place playoff so what what genuine difference so whatever make? happened during the, the Belgium-England game they still wouldn't have known well, actually losing this game is great because we know we're going to be playing X when they didn't know who they were going to be playing until they did, that but, played out but only two hours before so yeah. if you're going to prepare your team in two or three training sessions prior to that yeah. they certainly wouldn't have known mm-hmm. at that point the great thing about the Belgium game in the group Belgium part one the final group game was that you'd have thought everybody could agree at least that England had lost that game but there was still quite a few people arguing that England had in fact won Won. (laughs) yes by losing yes and so England going to the knockout stages part of a tournament in the World Cup that they had not um, won a game in since 2006 and for some reason Colombia are just waiting to be beaten uh, by England and then you get to the game and you watch the coverage and it, and it genuinely is. Oh, uh, England shouldn't have any problems with this lot. No well, problems with this lot. Well, it was utterly mystifying. I mean, Colombia came through South American qualification. D- does anyone realise just how difficult that is? No, because they, they don't know this. They, they just see what they've played in the World Cup and we're England and they don't have any concept of that, Steve. But you don't, clearly not. You don't even need to cast your mind back that far because in the second group game, Colombia absolutely destroyed Poland, yeah. who were many people's dark horses <laughs> dark for a deep run the yeah. dark into the World beat the Cup. Dark horses. Exactly. So uh, this was, you know, England picking and choosing their opponents. You're like, well, what are those opponents? Could be Colombia, who just absolutely smashed the team for whom Robert Lewandowski plays for. How are we getting to this stage where we think, oh, that'll be easy? At least we're going to avoid Brazil in the quarterfinals. That's right. It added to the enjoyment. It added to the fascination, but I still think we've got lessons to learn, haven't we, in appreciating that other other nations are decent at football, who, they who, have who, good players. Who has lessons to learn? The media well, or purely the media or well, fans there, or where? There is a discussion to be had as to who fuels the particular fires. Is yeah. it the media or is it the supporters or is it a bit of both? You know, what came first, chicken or egg? Where does the miscommunication come from in terms of what is the right and wrongs for England at at a major tournament? I think there are three parts to it. There's the broadcast media, there's the tabloid press, and then there's the fans. And it seems to be very difficult for a pervading narrative to slow down with any of those three constituent parts. Because if you are a fan tuning in to watch England on television, you will get, particularly because the World Cup spreads right into the mainstream, you will have your opinions fashioned on what you see on that broadcast because there are 10, 15, 20, more than 20 million people sometimes watching this. And so you will probably get your sense of, your immediate sense of something from the broadcast media. You Mm. will then get that rubber stamped by what you read in your newspaper of choice and the whole thing spirals. And we'll talk about after Columbia because that was spiraling gone mad. Well, I was going to say, when did the concept of we can win this first appear? Was it before? Because we're playing Columbia and no, we've got a better route? Was it after, after Columbia. the penalty shootout? Well, well, once the outrage at the Colombian tactics mm. had died down and England could celebrate the victory and once we'd established that the country Columbia was different to the American University (laughs) Columbia which seemed uh, a fact that eluded many people during (laughs) the course of that particular uh, match. That's the only thing that separates them. Yes, that was the moment. Getting over that hoodoo of the penalty shootout 
victory in a World Cup match, which is a significant achievement in itself and was all part of the fun of following England and again, during this World Cup. And again, genuinely a fantastic achievement and mm. was celebrated in the, right mo- in the right way at that right moment. Mm. Absolutely. D- do not get me wrong. This is not England bashing in terms of the, t- the, the achievements that they rightly should be rewarded for and respected for at the World Cup. It's just a, a sense of how things can sometimes it's get a, game a little they, bit it's out a game of they control. deserve to win. They, they However, they won it. They, they deserve, did deserve to win. To win yeah. And the penalties that they took fantastic yes. and the, the ability that they showed to, to nail their penalties particularly Kieran Trippier yes. who we can yeah. probably talk about over the next season as being yeah, a fantastic yeah. player and the contribution mm-hmm. he made etc etc but a fantastic achievement and rightly celebrated and the broadcast media did a fantastic job of reflecting that moment mm-hmm. because it genuinely was a wonderful moment and it was a moment of history the first yeah, penalty shootout yes. win in yeah. the World Cup in England's history that has never happened before rightly heralded but what happened after that was just a little unpalatable for well, many. Well, that's when the hysteria <laughs> kicked in, wasn't it? That's when the, the sense of delirium that this could be England's year started to manifest itself. After beyond. one knockout win, there were still eight teams left, yes. three games to win. They'd yeah. won one, they'd won one quarter. 75% of that road yes. still had yes. to we, we'd been We had been prepared <laughs> for the worst, hadn't we? As England football fans, we had been prepared for disappointment and suddenly here we are with just that sense that for once things were going our way even when we lost we'd won yes and that's when it's coming home really started to gather momentum is that when it was first pitched do you think? I think it had been on the periphery up until that point it had been self-deprecating it had been um Informal. It had been, yes. It it had just been in the way that I think most people throughout intended it to be. Mm. But what happened was, is that the mainstream, whether it be media or the mainstream in terms of everybody who's following this whole thing, didn't necessarily get that. And they latched onto it without the self-deprecation. Fact. And they latched onto it like it was fact, including, for example, on Sky Sports News, every England segment started with a huge wall that's behind them Mm. saying it's coming home stating fact after England had beaten Colombia to reach the quarterfinals of the World Cup the last eight so you you see it as that categorically that's what it 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 stood for stating it's coming home and too much of what followed what had been a self-deprecating informal singing of it's coming home because it's coming home is all about how rubbish England are and And it was written for that and I completely understand that and to reflect that song is to reflect a self-deprecation it is to reflect I always saw it as that yes yes, that's how I always I didn't realise people were deadly serious about it but then when it's taken as a matter of fact yes I didn't realise people did do that though. Not, not, <laughs> o- not only is that ridiculous mm. at that stage of the competition, but that then unfortunately reflects badly on England as a country because on a global scale they think that we're all massively arrogant and the fans who started it and started doing it amongst themselves with all the gifts and all the fantastic little reflections on social mm, media clips, about yeah, yeah, what, what yeah. was going on in the country at the time it was wonderful it was mm. great to see that because we all think that football is a wonderfully un- unifying yeah. force it has many bad things about it but it, it's fantastic to see that story play out in the whole country and the sun was out it was just wonderful that is the kind of thing that only a World Cup can do but for then some media outlets and some conversations to misunderstand that and take it as fact and to dress up everything like it was a statement of fact that of course it's coming home there is an inevitability that is uh, unstoppable at this stage when England had three games still to win it it was just utterly utterly baffling yeah to take something that was fans embracing the joy of having pride in following England again and you can see the the smiles on faces as this becomes a bit of a terrace anthem once more gets lost the minute that is there in print or in on a graphic on a TV screen is when those accusations of of arrogance and overconfidence can creep in and and so do and you remember when you when you first saw the change from this kind of fun jokey it's coming home kind of approach became this is going to happen. It's a bit Can like... You, was, it, was it after the... That, that's when it got serious? It's a bit like anything that becomes a movement yeah. for every so often. For, for a while, ah, oh, isn't this fun? 
And then you, it's, I, I found it difficult to pinpoint exactly when, but you just suddenly sensed that it had become too much. Yeah. And, and was therefore no longer so what it was intended to be. it's not over exuberance, it's not over exuberance with what we've achieved and how far that we've got and we can, people, we're being too cynical here and saying, it wasn't, it was like that, you feel. But it if, was if that, it, it was that way. it being amusing and yeah. then that person who thought it was amusing then sees it being taken seriously, mm. then even though they thought it was very amusing at the beginning, they will see it being taken seriously and they look at that and go, oh, oh yeah, maybe it is. And yeah. so you're even losing a part of the people who, who started it in a in a atmosphere I would utterly support, which is which is an amusing, self-deprecating, whimsical conversation about the fact that hey, maybe maybe it's coming home. Maybe we're not so rubbish after all. You know, that's that's a typical English way. But then but you then beat the Sweden, and it just way. it cements that thought again. So the more you win, the worse this this belief worse the worse this belief gets. Well, it was around about this time, of course, that another major factor from England's World Cup campaign that became a little bit divisive gathered momentum as well and that was the whole Raheem Sterling thing wasn't it yeah because there was a lot of scrutiny of his performance against Colombia supporters voting for or giving their player ratings on the BBC Sport website rated him to be England's least effective player in that game because your average fan watching in the pub or surrounded by friends at home the thing that would have stuck in their mind was the missed clear-cut opportunities in the first half and the fact that didn't really get a sense that he generated much in the way of goal-scoring opportunities for teammates, let alone having scored one himself. Whereas, of course, a lot of football journalists, there was a quite a bit of a sanctimonious attitude suddenly prevailed in that well if and you if can I just say we know sanctimonious mm. oh we can, we, do can, yeah, we can do sanctimonious Not we are brilliant at sanctimonious mm. so we can spot it a mile away <laughs> but there suddenly became this thing well if you don't if you because you know Raheem Sterling had had some unfair treatment over the course of you know the last year or so and and right before the World Cup in, in some of the tabloid press. But then all of a sudden, journalists seem to go to the other extreme to be protecting him from criticism or suggesting that any criticism of him was unwarranted. And a, a, a phrase started getting used in relation to Sterling's performance against Colombia by some journalists. If you believe Raheem Sterling wasn't up to it against Colombia, then you don't understand football. Mm-hmm. And that's just utterly unreasonable. It's an unfair position to take. People are entitled to their opinion, whatever the external narrative around a, a, a particular footballer is. People are entitled to their opinion of the contribution of that player in that particular. But a certain a certain percentage of fans will go along with Raheem Sterling being the scapegoat or the fall guy. If you if the, if England played a game and you knew what the lineup was and you said after the game, there's a couple of players who really underperformed. You'd probably 80% of the football fans would probably pick out Raheem Sterling as probably one that underperformed because he always does because that's what he tends to do or that's what we're being told or that's what I see when I when I see him playing for England. So I, I do I, that that is going too far. But there are a lot of fans who will just follow the crowd who say Raheem Sterling's terrible, shouldn't be in the team. Doesn't matter how he performs, that's what I'm going to believe. But a journalist going the other way and saying you don't know anything about football, yeah. if you believe that. That's completely wrong as well. So it's it's wrong on both scores as well for fans to believe that he's terrible because people have told them that he's terrible. But for journalists to say to football fans, you don't know what you're talking about if you think he is terrible in that game, they're both wrong. As as ever, it's somewhere in the middle. Yeah, yeah there absolutely. are occasions where Raheem Sterling does something infuriating because you know how good he is and can be, and he does not use those talents and skills in moments where it would be obvious that he was, i.e., scoring a goal. But there are tactical reasons for him being in that team, which mm-hmm. makes him almost essential, which yeah, is the point yeah. that Gareth Southgate made throughout the tournament, is that he is the one that injects pace, he is the one that moves between the line with well, the we ball, saw that because, against he's, Sweden. because he's running that with it, Sweden. and he is yeah. the one that threatens yeah. a, a, a static back four, if yeah. you like, yeah. particularly, um, as you say, against Sweden. That's a big back four that didn't want to have to turn. Yep. Raheem Sterling is the one player that England have that are able to do that, and they were worried every time England had the ball. Mm-hmm. Little did they know that every time that Raheem Sterling had the ball, nothing was to come of it, but <laughs> the fact is, is that he is there to provide that singular threat that he provides. So it's somewhere in the middle. He has tactical value that nobody else provides. He is also frustrating when he gets into positions where if he were to be a little bit more composed, he would be as good as we know that he should be. Well, this happened a lot at Man City, didn't it? In the Manchester derby. 
he got himself into fantastic positions but couldn't finish. So he, he does that. He scored a lot of goals. He also missed a lot of chances. And also, his, sadly for him, if, if, he, if Harry Kane if he had a combination of Harry Kane had the pace of Raheem Sterling and Raheem Sterling had the finishing of Harry Kane, you'd have a fabulous, the perfect centre-forward. But you have to play them both to try and get... Raheem Sterling to cause the problems and Harry Kane to score the goals. If you put Raheem Sterling in front of goal, he'll maybe score you three out of ten. Whereas Harry Kane will score different types of goals, but he'll score probably eight. So that's, that's the difference. And for, in a, if you're in a team with Raheem Sterling, you probably would want him in the team for the problems that he can cause and the benefit he can be to your teammates. Just because the guy has had unfair criticism over the type of sink he's bought his mum for her bathroom. And or then the tattoos. Yeah. And, yes. Or the and fact that he's having breakfast yeah. in the morning. Yeah. yeah. Stopping whoa, to have breakfast whoa, whoa, whoa. the day after he didn't win the PFA Player of the Year. One I of mean, the more he mystifying. should be starving himself for a week at least. <laughs> doesn't mean that when, when he plays, you can't have certain expectations about what he's going to deliver and be disappointed if you think those expectations haven't been met. But to, to some people, he made, he made a massive contribution. And I think certainly against Sweden... In the quarterfinals, he did. It's an element of confirmation bias. If you've decided that Raheem Sterling is not very good, yeah. everything he does, which yeah. isn't very good, you will remember, and everything that he does, which is positive, it might be harder to see in the first place, you will not remember mm-hmm. if you are... a a journalist, a sports journalist who thinks that nobody knows anything about football if they criticise Raheem Sterling, you'll only be pointing out the incredibly sensible and clever runs that he yeah, made. Yeah, yeah. He created space for Jesse Lingard behind yeah, him yeah. or for, for Harry Kane ahead of him. So there is, there is an element of that. And, and often when you get an element of confirmation bias in any argument, you probably have to say, well, do you know what? It's somewhere in, the in between. Yeah. You mentioned Sweden. And this is a game, of course, does this ring a bell? Should have been an easy win for England. Because what if Sweden got that can yeah. stop the mighty England? We always beat Sweden. There's always absolutely Sweden. no historical <laughs> examples of us coming unstuck against them. Never mind their, their, their previous efforts and who they'd played and who they'd beaten. Mm-hmm. And this was at the stage because there had been footballs coming home. Now, with the irony taken away, there was a, a bit of an ugly sense of inevitability that was expected of England. And... One of the worst things that could have happened at that point is that England did in w- indeed win very easily. Mm. And of course, that perpetuated everything that had come before. So there wasn't an element this time of after the game, well, that's what they should have done. There was genuine euphoria because it had delivered in the way that was we expected. Thought, yes, yeah. But of course, that was the worst thing that could have happened for what happened with Croatia. <laughs> so there really is genuinely no, there's no happy way to end it. So actually, what happened against Croatia was fed by the feeling going into the Sweden game, the performance of the Sweden game, led us to believe that this is Croatia. Enough, Croatia, we can beat them. England should have struggled against Sweden so mm. that everybody afterwards would have gone, well, it was supposed to be an easy win and yeah. there would have at least been a sense yeah. of fallibility about the whole thing. I wish we'd had Brazil fueled, or Germany yes, instead. <laughs> which would have fueled the conversation about Croatia a little bit yeah. differently. Uh, so, so yes, yeah, Sweden was still, even though it was slightly different, in, in of itself was as an example of what we've been talking but it, about. But again, it's just, you, you, you get, carried away with it don't you and uh, and people overlook the fact that well hang on a second Holland aren't at the World Cup because of Sweden Italy aren't at the World Cup because of Sweden and Germany are no longer in the World Cup partly because of Sweden but hey this is going to be an absolute breeze of an afternoon is, is that after the Columbia penalty shootout the blinkers went on and it didn't matter yeah. who we, we're England this is what you're saying this it's coming home this belief yeah. this, this blinkered belief that we are England and we just trundle towards the World Cup final and win the competition doesn't matter who we're playing or historical context we're, in, we're England now and we're, we're going to win this and that is why I'm saying or at least part of what we're saying is that the England experience, this World Cup, which was supposed to be so different, Mm. wasn't in fact that different. And so the sense of expectation, which was so low at the beginning, Mm. and we've talked about how that was slightly undermined anyway, if you lower the expectations so much that actually they they will be easily exceeded. And all that breeds hope, doesn't it? That it had got to the point where it was oh so familiar. That football was coming home. There was inevitability about what England were, were going to do. There was no regard whatsoever for the fact that actually there hadn't been great performances. The football hadn't been sensational, apart from a couple of early spells. And we'll come on to the fact that England played well early and in the old Sven Juran Eriksson. First half good, second half not so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that came back to haunt them a little bit. But there was this, this connection that England had with the team, which was wonderful, but then... That might be new, but then the old thing came and that was the sense of arrogance. The irony, the humour had gone from football's coming home 
and it was becoming more of a statement of fact and that then helped to break any sort of connection that England might have had outside of England when there might have been a few countries paying attention to this young England side being interested about how they're getting on and and, and maybe they're they're ones to watch and oh, I quite enjoy watching this team and then the sense that they got from everything that was going on in England actually disconnected that okay. yeah. that that uh, well-wishing that yes. they had for England which is at this point that we bring in another expert who wasn't in England at the time but was watching to see how England was reacting now do we know any experts experts okay um, a person that we've heard of that sometimes contributes to the Set Piece oh, Podcast. Yeah, yeah. Last week we spoke to Rory Smith of the New York Times um, and he was en route from Russia to Italy via Manchester. He was at Helsinki Airport. So for a view from Russia about England's story, once again, it's time to ask, where are you, Rory? I am still in Helsinki, Hugh. Oh yes, we're recording that. This is exactly the same time as we did the last one. Uh, so yes. that's the artifice gone. Um, Don't tell people behind the curtain, it's ridiculous. <laughs> no peeking. Could you please tell me what the perception was out in Russia of the media story that followed England and whether you got any sort of sense about how up and down it was in this country? We, yeah, we did. And I think that, that's a really interesting thing about this World Cup, that it's been the first uh, kind of feedback loop World Cup. So if you have 2010 was the Twitter World Cup, 2014 was the Instagram World Cup. This was very much the kind of video GIF World Cup. And that meant the players knew what was going on back home and the fans here knew what was going on back home and the journalists here knew what was going on back home. And I think that, that, that changes the nature of the experience completely for everybody because you are much more aware than, than ever before of the impact that it is making. Um, in terms of how England were perceived, it's funny, until, until the last 16, England didn't make, a, didn't make any noise at all in the tournament. The re it, this is always what happens, that the, the, the tournament happens and England are kind of tucked away somewhere. They're not quite big enough on a global scale to kind of make people want to pay huge amounts of attention to them because they're, um, you know, they're not Brazil or Argentina or Germany, but literally they're not small, so everyone's kind of vaguely conscious that they are, they're knocking about. Um, so until the last 16, you didn't really notice them. And then beyond that, I think there was a sense of Something's different. This team is has changed. There's not there's not quite as much. Um, they're not they're not as they're not as long ball. They're not as direct. They're not as ugly. They're not as arrogant. Um, and there was a, there was I think a lot of sympathy for them until the semi final um, when the coming home thing maybe just went a little bit too far. I think it was meant playfully and ironically initially, but I can understand why it's not necessarily taken that way. And oh, it's ironic. Isn't always the greatest kind of excuse. When, when people say that we don't like your, we don't like the way you're behaving, saying, oh, it's ironic, isn't always a brilliant excuse. Um, that dissipated it a little bit, and the way that kind of that, not from the England team did, but that um, that slight kind of sense that the the fans or the media were, were hadn't lost that old arrogance, whether rightly or wrongly, I think that didn't necessarily help how England were perceived. Um, but overall, I would say this is a tournament in which they have improved their international standing rather than diminished it. And that, I think, is, is probably the first time for quite a while you've been able to say that. Having said that, it's still worth calling Rio Ferdinand and Numpty for saying that they were going to smash Croatia. Yeah, I just didn't understand that. I didn't understand that at all. I don't understand. I, it, it baffled me that, partly through superstition that he'd say that, but also through, um, through the fact that they've got like Luka Modric and Ivan Rakitic in midfield. It just made no sense to me that he said that. And that was, that was kind of a little flash of the bad old England. It did kind of make you think, well, is that why you never did very well in tournaments? Did you think that everybody was rubbish? Because this Croatia team are, are not really that different to the Portugal team that knocked England out twice in a row in 2004 and 2006. Were they not taking them seriously because they only had Luis Fido and Cristiano Ronaldo? Is that is that why they went out? It just, it, that was, it just, it felt really out of place given that the kind of way England had approached the tournament and the humility and the playfulness of the fans. And I think that was what really stood out. Was the fans? The fans weren't taking themselves seriously, and that really helps matters, I think. So that's Rory from Helsinki Airport. I hope he hasn't been there for a whole week. No, no, no. It's all right. We recorded at the same time. Um, the, the, the the point that Rory makes um, is, I think, similar to what we were trying to make prior to hearing from Rory, which is always very validating to hear somebody of the intelligence and expertise of of Rory kind of agreeing with us, and and the sense that there was a point at which it changed. It changed from being playful and ironic, as the words that, that Rory used, into being a little bit more serious. And 
there's a sense at that point, England lost the fans that they might have built up during the tournament or prior to the tournament outside of England. But in England, between Sweden and Croatia, there was that extraordinary sense that football was indeed going to be coming home. But why? And that's Rory's point, that Croatia are a very good team just because you believe it doesn't necessarily make it so. And it got to the point, as we mentioned with Rory, that Rio Ferdinand declared on the television that it was going to be easy. And I think Lee Dixon, even at half-time in the Croatia game, said that these Croatians, they don't have anything. They're not offering anything. There's nothing for England to fear. And then completely dominated the game. And, and completely <laughs> dominated the game thereafter. And, and that will lead us to our conversation that we're going to have about England and how they played yeah, in yeah, a moment. Yeah. But first of all, those three or four days before Croatia is it just me or was that not necessarily the way that we wanted England to connect to their fans it's interesting actually bearing in mind that to to hear what Rory had to say and the fact that working for the New York Times he wasn't on the England beat as it were but it's still filtered back you know that with social media being such an influence on the World Cup that it filtered back to journalists in Russia, what the, yeah, what, the, what, the, what the the prevailing mood was like at home. And with the benefit of hindsight, isn't it a shame that the mainstream media couldn't let the fans have its coming home to embrace it in that playful, joyful way and to have seen it through to its natural conclusion? Because once it got picked up by the mainstream media, that is what where the tone changed a little bit. And it went from being that fun song in the stands amongst those hardcore who had uh, followed England to Russia to, to, to it being a little bit more loutish, a little bit more leery. This, it was almost a call, became a call to arms that it was coming home. Yeah. And how dare you rather, question it? Yeah, rather than we have rediscovered pride in our nation. So by England winning a knockout game, winning a penalty shootout and beating a relatively poor Swedish team, this played into the belief, that this strengthened the belief. So England actually performing in the way that they did made the fans go down this road or certain the section of the fans go down this road as if to say this is now a fact and it, it has to happen I stress the point none of this is to undermine the achievement no that's what I'm saying that's of, what I'm trying to say the England, England achievements as a team they're they How does this feed into the first the semi-final response? since 1990 is a fantastic mm-hmm. achievement. They did it. There have been teams that are better, England teams that are better than them, that played against harder teams in the past and have failed to do so. Regardless, they have failed to do so. Mm-hmm. England achieved that, and that is a fantastic achievement, and we should not, at any point during this conversation, let anybody believe that we are undermining their achievement. We wonder, simply, whether the surrounding narratives were actually really that different to any of those other occasions where England have had a complete disconnect and there has been a sense of arrogance and a sense of inevitability before and perhaps before that Croatia game it was just like the bad old days. But as we discussed there was that contradictory nature to following England at this World Cup which was a little bit different to previous major tournaments, at least those in, in very recent memory. And, and the, we should also say this is only an element yes. of the support of England. This is not mm. everybody all the time. As yeah. you were mentioning, because, yeah, yeah, you've yeah. got some gifts which are yeah, yeah, yeah. ones that you took as a joke, yeah. but then given the context of everything that was happening around mm-hmm. it, perhaps it doesn't quite seem no, that absolutely. much like yes. a joke yeah, anymore. Because yeah. yeah. I, I felt, I don't know whether anyone else got this sense, but it, it did feel a bit surreal, the coverage that, that the media going into the semi-final. Yes, there was that embracing of Maybe it really is coming home. But there was also that side of it where the World Cup was already deemed to have been a success from an England point of view. So there wasn't quite the seize the moment, seize the day kind of attitude that you might have got under other circumstances. And you think back to the last time England were in a semi-final in a major tournament, 1996, there was, you know, there was no Harry Maguire on the front page of a newspaper in a tin hat like there was with Stuart Pearce back in, mm. in 96 out of the semi-final against uh, in, in Germany. The, the national pride had already returned, so it didn't need encouraging from the media that had all that element had already been achieved so there was a sense that what happened against Croatia wasn't the be all and end all which I don't think would have been true if we'd have been looking at that situation maybe in 2006 and and those two things seem to me to be mutually exclusive 
if it doesn't necessarily matter, again, it does matter, but in the context of everything that we've spoken about, if it doesn't necessarily matter as much as it had in previous occasions that England win the semi-final because of the achievement thus far, then why was this element happy to perpetuate the idea of certainty that football's coming home? Keep it as it should have been, as it began of being irreverent because then that marries up much more happily with the idea that England, if they lose to Croatia, it's still been a wonderful tournament. But there was just this element that happened prior to Croatia which left a bad taste in the mouth. It didn't overwhelm anything. It didn't ruin my enjoyment of the World Cup. It Again, I say it wasn't 100% of the coverage. It was just an element that made me feel a little uneasy especially bearing in mind quite a lot of this came from journalists who understand the context, understand what has happened previously, are sociologically aware, and yet some of them fell a little bit too hard. Well, we it. said we can do sanctimonious, so let's, so so let's do it. That's part one. It's, <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, it's, a major tournament it, it unifies the nation in terms of following football in the way that you don't get from the club game, firstly the Croatia semi-final was watched by 25 million people. That is a phenomenal number of people by, by addressing it in any which way. But if you compare it to those that are watching Premier League football regularly live on, on Sky or BT Sport, those are massive numbers. Mm. So it's very, very different. You know, People are following England in a major tournament that may not follow the club game with anything like the same level of interest, which is why you get perhaps this disparate situation that the more knowledgeable, the more thoughtful football fans weren't really thinking it was coming home and were already celebrating the fact that England had gone considerably further in the competition than any of them would have predicted beforehand. Whereas those who had jumped on the bandwagon as the tournament was going along didn't want the ride to end. They wanted to believe they were going right over the finish line. Just a question mark would have would have done for me, like Ron Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming home. Yeah. Is, is it? it? That the rise would, at the end of the sentence. But but you but, stay classy, <laughs> England. Um, and and <laughs> what Rory said, and, and what we'll talk about briefly now, is is the fact that there was an element of the global coverage that took it seriously and felt the arrogance okay. that had very much uh, given them a distaste for England in the past had returned. It obviously upset Luka Modric. He said as much that's, after that's the, the semi-final. That's one of the first reports I after read was, was his comments. Final, yeah. You see the way that the French players mm-hmm. mocked England by yes, singing his coming Pogba, home. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, Germany, ever since 1996, have had a, a mocking it's coming home chant. Um, so they've enjoyed So we shot it. ourselves in the foot yet again. <laughs> but again, I feel sorry because the song is supposed to be... It's, it's, Hugh, it's an ironic is, song. All this is proving is we've got the best tunes. <laughs> it's got the best tunes. Mm. Other That's people want them and claim them for themselves. And that or hang on, or hang on, they're laughing at us. Hang on a minute. The Didier Deschamps chant that the French players sang when they accosted him during his press conference was based on Two Unlimited's There's No Limit, which I think you'll find they're Didier Dutch. Deschamps, <laughs> Deschamps. Yeah, they did. That's right. You're um, right. Good one. Yes. But, but Luka Modric was clearly inspired by this sense that he got that the English press had been yes. arrogant prior yeah. to the game. Yeah, that's very true. He did. Yeah, that's when the first reports I read wasn't that's one of the first things he said was they felt so aggrieved to have been written off. So his is is it so even representing the coverage or are we right to say that there was an element of it? Well, which if, clearly went a little too if far. If you've just played in a World Cup semi-final and you've made the final and you feel so strongly about the media coverage from your opponent, clearly that struck a chord with a very experienced player and he felt the need to say this is what drove us on more than anything else was how the media reported our chances in this game and he felt it was completely disrespectful for whatever reasons it was made how disrespectful they were clearly that fired up the Croatians so again it massively backfired how aware were you, Chinch, of what was in the Saudi Arabian press or the, the Cameroonian very, very press aware. ahead of your big games? People Frank- say I live in a Woodford bubble. But I... I you weren't living uh, in a Woodford bubble when you played for England. But Saudi Arabian football is, as you know, at the forefront of my, uh, my tiny, tiny mind. I would be astonished if Luka Modric read any British media coverage during the course of the World Cup. But as we've discussed, in a social media age when it gathered the kind of momentum it gathered, that is what would have made the I, Croatian players aware of I his existence. I would be astonished if he wasn't aware of it. 
or made but, aware of it. It's a World Cup semi-final, but, he, but there's, there's gaps between the quarter-finals. They, they will, and someone would have mentioned yeah. this. And this but is he, why, yeah, of course they would clearly know. He, but he didn't get it from, you know, because he, he subscribes to the Times via his no, iPad No, he wasn't app, watching the BBC. He might yeah. do. Or ITV. He might do. But that, no, that would be that would be gift up and sent him. True. Or it, it would be an, an yeah. element of, as we say, but... It's it's the feedback loop world cup. It's the feedback loop world cup, as a, a, a phrase that Rory has coined, saying that the players are now finding out about what's going on mm-hmm. at home, and because of the democratization of the internet, it doesn't have to be in your own country. It can be anywhere in any country, and you'll find out about it. Um, but Modric is an interesting person at this stage because we're just going to talk about finally about how England played, because Luka Modric is essentially the player that England are missing if mm-hmm. they're missing anybody in any position. It is that position because so often England started and a game Rakitic, well. And probably Rakitic, Perisic, Rebic, <laughs> Mandukic, as Glenn Hoddle <laughs> likes to call him. Quite a lot of those Croatian players we could probably do with. But the England started that game very well. They yeah. had a chance to yeah, go 2 yeah, yeah, up. Yeah, Wonderful yeah. free kick here in Trippier. Yep. Harry Kane should have scored. Mm-hmm. And there are occasions where I would imagine <laughs> that's why at half-time Lee Dixon said that Croatia are offering nothing. Um, that a lot of people would have thought, goodness me, this is really easy. Croatia are rubbish. But a game isn't played in the first half an hour. As it turned out, it was over 120 minutes. And I think for you, Chinch, that represents where England weren't quite good enough Mm -hmm. to either guarantee us that football was indeed coming home or indeed to get any further in the tournament because they, they were... They were outclassed but there's over aspects a period of, of the game where Croatia figured out what yeah. England could do and they nullified and they eventually yeah. squashed them. But there's aspects of that in every game that England played, even against Panama. I think there were sections of the game where you saw, not saying that the, the best team, well, Spain probably very different. They do just tend to, or when they were successful, dominated every aspect of the game for the full 90 minutes. But England did have good periods and bad periods. In that, and that's what, that's what their performances were all about. It didn't just happen in that Croatia game. It happened in a lot of other matches as well. Okay, they didn't maybe concede the goals because of Jordan Pickford and whatever else. Against Sweden. Sweden could have scored two or three. Okay, could have. But still, there were patches in every game that they played where the opposition had a spell and could easily have scored two or three if not for one reason or another. So, I, I still think they overachieved by, in terms of the, the players that they have and the performances that I saw. Wonderful that they got to where they got to. But again, I didn't realise, this is really interesting to me, because I say I don't live in a Woodford bubble, but I do, and I like living there, is that I didn't realise that this is coming, I just thought all the way along it was a complete joke. I never thought that that arrogance and having watched us, what I mainly did was just watch England play, and I thought, it has to be ironic, because you've watched us play, and if you think that's deadly serious, and that this is cast in, you're not watching the England games that I've seen. So I, I always presumed all the way along it was just a, a comedy thing and if we did win it it's oh my god we've actually won it I didn't realise that there was an arrogance and a real belief that, that we are that good that this is going to happen but once again the enduring point we're trying to make during this conversation is that perhaps the England experience this time around wasn't that no, different wasn't, to no. the previous times and what you've just said is an example of that because the pervading mood does not connect in any way to the actual sure. events yes. on the pitch. Yes. Well, this is interesting. I just watched the games. I didn't. I don't do social media. I never got involved really, apart from stuff that was sent to me. But I always saw it as something that was just a joke, not to be taken seriously. Because I was watching the games and judging the World Cup and the England games by the performances that I saw. The things that were different this time around, the PR battle was won. We liked the players and we admired Gareth Southgate for the job that he did under the circumstances. And one or two players covered themselves in glory mm-hmm. in the World Cup. They yeah. really emerged as, as great players. Kieran Trippier, Harry Maguire, for me, the two that really... Well, Jesse Lingard was outstanding. Pickford, J- yeah. J- Pickford, John Stones. Yeah, yeah. Bearing in mind, John Stones has often been the, seen as the, the golden boy. So he at least delivered in that and, regard. And although Harry Kane clearly struggled... In, in the latter stages of England's World Cup, he finishes top goal scorer, and that's what number nines are on the pitch to do: score the goals. It doesn't matter how they they come about. Harry Kane scored six goals and, and finished with the golden boot. <laughs> we spoke during the, the the series that we had during the World Cup about Oleg Selenko. So, you know, you can finish <laughs> finish as a golden boot winner without getting out of the group stage in time gone by. So mm. Harry Kane rightly heralded as a fantastic golden boot winner. But I think we will because of. You know the fact that the PR battle was was won, and there was general admiration over what England achieved in reaching the semi-finals. Is that you know perhaps the the somewhat meek second half surrender against Croatia will be overlooked, and the fact that it was a wonderful opportunity. If England had been able to put together maybe seventy or eighty minutes worth of a performance in that semi-final, then they'd have reached the final, and then who who knows what 
would have happened. Perhaps it would have been us complaining about the video assistant referee. And boy, would we. <laughs> afterwards. But, you know, it, it was a great opportunity for England that they weren't quite able to grasp. But that will, I think, will be overlooked even when we reflect you know, with the benefit of, of a certain amount of time over yeah. over the over the pride that people took from from following England through that particular world. Yeah, so as we look at this tournament and what it gave us and how people responded to it, but what it leads to is also yeah. as important, isn't it? The next year, what what are, what are the thoughts going to be going into that tournament? How much better are we going to be in two years' time? In four years' time, it's a stepping stone, isn't it? And do are people arrogant enough now to think, well, we've got to the semi-final in the way that we did? That means we're going to get to semi-finals of all the next. Next, in the next 10 years this is how strong surely we're not the belief isn't there the arrogance isn't there to think that that's going to happen the enduring point I think is is funnily enough to support what was kind of ridiculed before the tournament which was their stated aim of inspiring a nation and regardless of everything that we have said which is to complain and be sanctimonious about a section of the tournament and a section of the narrative that followed England they genuinely did inspire a nation. They reconnected with their fans mm-hmm. and that is of a tangible value as intangible as inspiring a nation seems as a target before you go to a competition. Yeah, I suppose that, that, is, that is fantastic, I suppose. But also in terms of getting to a semi-final and how you get to a semi-final because how you get to a semi-final and how you develop how you get there is what will serve you well. Because surely you enter competitions to try and win them. Because that's what Germany do. That's what France have done in the past. That's what they'll continue to do. Mm. That's their mentality. So connecting, well, right, we've reconnected now. Our, our football now has to develop to enable us to mm. beat better teams. Because when we came up against good teams, really good teams, we fell short. So there's still a huge development on the field. And I just wonder whether there'll be that disconnect again when maybe it doesn't quite go to plan in the, in the next European Championships, the next World Cup, are we going to see a backlash to say, well, do you remember the World Cup in 2018? What's happened? What's gone wrong with this team? And that's, it's a real challenge for Gareth and, and the FA is to try and develop, because the football needs to improve enormously to get anywhere near a semi-final in the next, in the next 10 years, I'd say. You would, you would, I think, agree that the football has improved from 2014 and 2016? Well, it couldn't couldn't get any, it couldn't get any worse. That's an easy argument to say, but it couldn't get any worse. It couldn't get any worse. So you'd have to say whatever England team they put out, surely it would be better than that. But still, they've got to put a group of players together. They've still got to put the performances in. Who they play did help them enormously as well. And the way that the competition uh, went helped them. But that takes nothing away from where they got to. But that's why with watching the games, how they got to that semi-final... Is that going to be good enough in future competitions to do the same? And if they stand still, absolutely, there's no, they couldn't get beyond it in this competition, let alone in competitions to come, because Germany will improve. You expect Italy to do something about their situation. Holland, everybody will step up their game. So our England, do they genuinely believe we're on a path of the type of football we want to play, the personnel that we've got? If we continue to develop, are we going to be... Because we need to win something. And it is wonderful we've had this connection, and maybe that's what was needed. But where do we go from here in terms of the style of football and in terms of will there be a backlash when things maybe don't because football can kick you in the teeth absolutely it can and that's the issue with high expectations yep. starting high as opposed yep. to as we said earlier low expectations yep. starting low and being e- easy mm. to beat mm-hmm. and it's intoxicating isn't it to believe that rather than being the end it's the start of something and this lovely idea well these players will all be two well, that years, would scare me, two Steve. years that better would scare off me. Yeah, at the Euros next yeah. World Cup four years more experience that Are you forgetting mm. that France will also have benefited from that experience? France aren't at their Germany, peak, they? Italy, they'll all be better. So let's not get carried away and let's not quite overlook the fact that an opportunity uh, was there and England fell just short. Mm. England were the third youngest squad at the World Cup. Yep. Yeah. The second youngest squad mm. were France. They won it. Really? So. I didn't realise they were. That was. Crikey. So, so, the, right, so okay. it's not just youth and inexperience. So you can t- still win it. So they're talking about England having not yet peaked. France haven't. Yet they just win it. Yeah, that's worrying. Uh, it is time before we go for a slightly more uplifting tale. Uh, never mind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is when Andy tells us a tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. Well, we've been talking about England, so I think only right. I have a little England story. It's not a major story. It's just Glenn Hoddle was Mandukic. mainly was what Mandukic. Mandukic. He talked a lot about Mandugic and Stephen Nzonze. I don't know who he is, anyway. What I do like from Glenn Hoddle is his love train, his description of the Yes, but he copyrighted. I'm sure he's copyrighted that because he got it into every match. 
Love whether ch- England I, were playing or I not. I do like that because there's also an excellent song by the OJs. So. I'm, I'm sure I told a story of when I was I was injured. I'd done my crucial ligaments, but I came. All back your stories to start with I was injured, and I got called up for the England squad. I travelled to when we drew nil nil in Italy to qualify for right, the yep. is it the 1998 World, World, World Cup, and I was just part of the. How the many squad. World Cups do you think you were part of qualifying for? <laughs> <I'll>, <laughs> 19, <laughs> only 1998. Damn. Why did you? Pause? Oh, I thought it was a lot pause? better than I was. Anyway, anyway, anyway. He had me do. I think I told he was he was on in one half of the pitch and I was and he was working on my right foot that's and he was right. trying to get oh, me to pass the ball. Yeah. Well, this was a training session at Bisham Abbey, where um, England obviously have home games. That's where we train. And for some strange reason, he he was doing shooting practice, which is is fine. You know, I'm a left back. I only have a left foot. He started again because he could do it. Lay the ball off and try and bend it in the top corner with your right foot against David James. I'm like, have you ever seen? Do you know where I play? <laughs> so shooting sessions normally middle of goal. You roll the ball into it. Who lays it to your strongest foot and you just smash it over the bar and you go back to the back of the queue again. <laughs> You're not expected to do. And but they say, no, well, I'm going to play it on your right. What? Oh, can't you just bend this one in? I can't kick it, Glenn. <laughs> Never mind. Shoot. Put power, precision, I can't do any of that. Do you not realise? But he, again, it was so annoying. And every time you played it into whoever's laying on, put it onto your right foot. But when, when is that going to be relevant in my game? That I'm going to be on the edge of the opposition box, <laughs> unless it's a free kick, to try and bend the ball into the top corner with a foot I only stand on. So I know he was trying to improve me, but he's wasting his time. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't know as much about football. When he does his cold commentary, clearly he knows a lot about football. Just can't pronounce people's names. But why would he have a left back like me shooting with his right foot? Answer me that. I'll tell you why. We didn't do any rondos either. Because <laughs> he had a higher hope for you, Chinch, than you had for yourself. Yeah, it is attitudes like that, which is dragging the English game down. Be progressive. But- be thinking outside of your box. But do you know what I actually wonder, did? Wonder what the possibilities might be. You're only using 10% of your brain. Did you know? For God's sake, use two of your feet. 10% really that much? <laughs> you know what I started to do was like use the outside of my left foot and he stopped me and said, yeah, but that's what I do in a... Don't matter. Yeah, but I would never do it in a game if it just... The ball happened to drop. I would do what naturally comes to me, which is the outside of my left foot. I'm not going to say, you know what, I'm going to bend this in the top corner with the inside of my right foot. I'm not going to do that, Glenn. It's you not going to happen. must have loved Ricardo Caresma's goal I was just thinking for about Portugal against Iran. The one where... Cause he, is that he, where he cut in? And he cut in and hit it with the outside of his right foot because exactly. knows Caresma has no left but foot. But Glenn whatsoever. would say, stop, that doesn't count. <laughs> stop. Inside the left foot or nothing, Ricardo. Exactly my point. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you, Ricardo, for that wonderful goal. Do you think I could in be World an international Cup? coach with uh, this kind of acumen? With that attitude, absolutely not. Mm. Do please get in touch with the podcast. You can absolutely do that uh, via Twitter at setpiecemenu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Just to let you know, next week we will be unveiling and revealing details of season 2018 19 set piece menu Premier League Predictions League. Oh, oh brilliant. It's I can humiliate back. myself again. You can <laughs> humiliate yourself. All the details coming up next week week i bet you can barely wait in the meantime you can subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule thank you to steve to andy to rory poor guy still at helsinki airport Uh, and thank you to you all for listening Uh, please do get in touch Uh, in the meantime we'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed so those predictions we did last season Yes. Who came, who came? Who was the worst of all of us? Was it Steve? Steve was the worst. Was I, I think, Steve, this, you're gonna, this, you've learnt your lesson. I'm going to nail it. I think you're going to nail it. I mean, it. obviously, yep. Cardiff 20th, and then we'll work up from there. Yeah, but we fell into that trap with Huddersfield. And yeah. We all look foolish there. We're not going to we? be wrong two seasons running, though, surely. You're not. Huddersfield didn't have Neil Warnock as their manager. <laughs> Neil Warnock, who certainly wouldn't have got you. Neil Warnock. <laughs> would not have, would not have got you practising on your weak foot. He knew better but than sh- that. Fine from the edge of my own penalty area, but shooting. Could you kick it ten yards with your right foot? Side of my foot, yes. Right, but I couldn't. My hips don't work in that way. I couldn't bend it, or I just couldn't do it. So, but I understand if you're trying to clear and you've got a split second. Maybe that's what you're thinking. Maybe if you could teach you to shoot with your right foot, you would learn to clear with your right foot. I doubt it. Maybe you'd have been a better footballer. Really? Yeah. How could I have been better? Seven caps would have been eight. Wow. Eight caps would have been nine. Double figures. No, probably stopped at nine, but still, it was an improvement at least. (laughs)